You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 9th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, as the Israel-Hamas war rages, President Macron hosts a humanitarian conference in Paris, but has he lost his footing on the world stage? We'll head to Hollywood, where the actors have declared victory after their four-month strike. That's right, the blockbuster resolution we're all hoping to hear after intense negotiations and picket lines. The actor's strike is officially over. I'll dive into the details of the tentative deal and what it means for the future of Hollywood productions. Australia's New South Wales announces plans for a major rezoning of a commercial district in northern Sydney. Essentially, the plan is to use their state powers to override the local council to run a rezoning process. Plus the latest business news. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Well, in Paris today, President Macron is hosting a conference on humanitarian aid for Gaza. Officials from more than 50 countries are attending, as well as UN agencies and NGOs. Israel, however, will not be sending representatives. Nina Dos Santos is an international broadcast correspondent and was formerly CNN's Europe editor. Nina, thank you for joining us again. Firstly, what is President Macron saying at this conference? Well, uh, Vincent, he's opened up the conference with a plea immediately to Israel, who, as you pointed out in your introduction, declined to attend this conference, the Elysee said. Um, And Macron said that Israel needs to protect civilians in Gaza. Quote, he said, all lives have equal worth and that fighting terrorism can never come without respecting the boundaries of international law. Um, So he was talking to the very party that wasn't present here in the room, although there were, as you pointed out, a huge number of parties that have skin in the game here that that were. So in particular, we had Ursula von der Leyen, the um, European Commission President, Charles Michel, the head of the European Council, um, representatives from UNRWA, the United Nations uh, Relief Agencies, and also representatives from Jordan, from the UAE, from Egypt, huge players that have, um, you know, have large potential refugee problems if, say, for instance, Egypt were to open up the Rafa crossing, uh, which it, for its reasons, refuses to do in large scale. And also Jordan, that for generations has hosted um, a huge number of Palestinian refugees who were displaced back in 1948. So there's lots of people around the table here who want to see humanitarian assistance provided to Gaza. But the question is, is how exactly could that uh, be brought about? Now, France has this really ambitious plan that it's trying to work up with the um, governments of some Mediterranean uh, members of the EU, in particular Cyprus, to create sort of humanitarian sea corridors, if you like, because the land borders surrounding Gaza are, as we said, blocked on one side in the south by Egypt and then obviously by Israel on the other side in the north. But Cyprus wants to allow ships to be allowed to dock in Gaza to provide uh, badly needed aid. And France also has sent a helicopter carrier to allow this to be able to happen and potentially to medically evacuate um, some of the casualties so that they can be treated on boats at sea. It is ambitious, though, and it's going to be very, very difficult to implement. 
France was the only G7 member last month to vote in favour at the UN of a ceasefire. The other nations are talking about humanitarian pauses. Why is Macron taking a different stance? Indeed, this is an important point, because if you remember, it was Brazil, I think, that sponsored that particular attempted resolution, knocked back by the United States, saying that it was too early here to talk about any sort of talk of a ceasefire in the U.S., of course, hasn't changed its position, remember. This is something that um, both the government and the leader of the opposition in the UK are having to contend with as well. This clamour for calls for a ceasefire, particularly from protesters around the world as well, we have to point out. But then many politicians not willing to stick their necks out and actually ask for one, instead calling for humanitarian pauses. Now, the logic behind all of this, obviously, Vincent, is that many politicians say, well, Having a ceasefire, advocating for a ceasefire, would just allow Hamas to regroup, and Hamas or Israel might not agree to one anyway. Um, but Macron, of course, remember, has um, an important uh, country to the north of Israel that he has to consider that France has huge history with, which is Lebanon. And Hamas isn't the only problem that Israel could be facing. It could also be a much bigger problem on the northern border if Hezbollah does eventually uh, open up a a northern front um, on this wall. So I think Macron is quite um, aware of that, and he's trying to navigate that by bringing together all of these different parties. Let's just face it, when it comes to uh, French presidents, particularly Macron and Nicolas Sarkozy was similar as well, they do like making a big show of foreign policy, don't they? They they mm. like to capitalize on the opportunity to try and bring the parties towards them and insert the French presidency in trying to steer the dialogue. And I wonder whether this is typical Macronism, if you like. But obviously, there's more to that at stake than all of this. There's 10,000 lives, allegedly, that have already been lost, according to Palestinian authorities in Gaza. And, you know, this shows no sign of... Um, abating until, of course, there is some kind of humanitarian pause so that people can, you know, who who have been so badly affected, who need terrible medical assistance, who need water and energy and fuel and food, by the way, because all the bakeries have run out of of flour in northern Gaza desperately, that France can do something to try and bring the powers together, even if it's by sea, to get something to these people. And on that point, uh, Macron has been mocked for his attempts uh, prior to the invasion of Ukraine to try to negotiate with Vladimir Putin. He had ambitions for being Europe's global heavyweight post-Merkel. How's he looking when it comes to that? Yeah, I think, um, the, as we know, his, um, his tentative uh, attempts at reproachment uh, were knocked back as though it was appeasement, wasn't it? I mean, I remember... You know, I was just at an event uh, speaking to Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the um, exiled uh, Russian oligarch who lives now in the UK yesterday evening. Um, and uh, I remembered when I interviewed him about a year and a half ago, the day after Macron made those comments, um, had that meeting with Vladimir Putin, and as you said, was widely mocked. And I remember Khodorkovsky saying, this man is naive. He is a child, you know, if he thinks that he can... Um, reason with somebody like Vladimir Putin. The reality is is that, you know, we live in an age, irrespective of whether you're talking about the Ukraine war, about what's happening between Israel and Gaza, we live in an increasing age of autocratic creep in lots of countries. And um, whether it's, it wasn't just Russia uh, that Macron was mocked for, you remember, he also went to go on a big visit to China as well, didn't he? And uh, didn't, didn't bring up some of the thornier issues there as well. 
But I think the thing is, is look, he's into his second term as French president, and these are big set-piece foreign affairs, intractable problems that need sorting out straight away. And he's got the energy, and he will wish to insert his agenda in France right into that. And finally, just turning briefly to Germany, uh, Berlin is ramping up its arms exports to Israel. Yes, that's right. There's been a huge spike. I think it's a tenfold spike, isn't it, uh, Vincent? Close to 300 million euros, or 303 million euros, actually, to be precise, worth of arms exports, it seems, were approved um, in the last year. Uh, as I was saying, versus sort of 32 million a year before um, to Israel. It, Israel is still a small, relatively a small client for German-made weaponry. Lots of what's uh, heading to Israel that's sold as defense systems, fighting vehicles, personnel carriers, and so on and so forth. Um, the German, uh, the, the, the size of this market for Germany is about eight globally is about $8 billion. And so 300 million euros sent to Israel is still a drop in the ocean for Germany, economically speaking, but it is um, a a growing amount. And obviously, um, as we know, there'll be large amounts of weaponry that will be being ordered as we speak now, because Israel's Iron Dome uh, defense system against those rockets coming over from Gaza that Hamas is firing, some from uh, Lebanon over the border in the north from Hezbollah, at some point, with the Iron Dome defense system being pummeled so much from south and the north, uh, they, those systems will need replenishment. So it's vital for Israel that it does continue to be able to order from places like Germany and also the United States, mm. um, frankly. There was a report, though, that uh, I noticed from one of the human rights organizations just earlier this week um, saying that Italy and Germany have been continuing to ramp up their shipments and export licenses to Israel. Of course, it starts to order more, more of this weaponry that it that needs it needs as it's so committed to continuing to root out Hamas and Gaza. Nina dos Santos, thank you very much. Now here's Christy O'Grady with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. The United Nations Human Rights Commissioner said both Israeli forces and Hamas have committed war crimes in their month-long war and called for a ceasefire. Israel and Hamas militants are engaged in fierce fighting in the northern Gaza Strip and both sides claim to have inflicted heavy losses on the other. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his South Korea counterpart Park Jin discussed growing military ties between Russia and North Korea on a visit to Seoul by Washington's top diplomat. Blinken and Park said they also spoke about enhancing strategic cooperation with Japan. And New York's Guggenheim Museum will team up with Converse for a one-year collaboration. The shoe and clothing brand will provide financial support to the museum's internship programme and to its initiative, which brings creative professionals together with local students. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Christy. In the last hour, Pedro Sanchez has secured the crucial support he needs to stay in power as Spain's prime minister, vindicating his dramatic gamble on a snap election earlier this year. But his offer of an amnesty to Catalan separatist plotters has sparked protests in the country. Our Madrid correspondent Liam Aldos is on the line. Uh, Liam, what can you tell us? Well, it's been a very eventful week, particularly on the streets of Madrid and in other cities like Barcelona and Valencia. This agreement was actually meant to have been sealed last week, but 
because there's so many forces, political forces and judicial forces conspiring to impose their will on the nation, I mean, we're talking about forming government here, there's been a lot of uh, dramatic developments. One of those was the conservative majority high court releasing a statement against this so-called amnesty deal. And another really important development was a judge opening a case related to terrorism against Carlos Puigdemont, the leader of Junts, who was the, the, the main force pushing the Catalan referendum and independence drive back in 2017. That terrorism charge is connected to one of the protests at Barcelona airport back in 2017. And basically, because of these judicial maneuvers, the government forces, the negotiating table, all the political parties trying to get this for the table, took another week to basically ensure that it was airtight, that there weren't going to be any loopholes that could basically plunge Spain into more lawfare, which, you know, the <laughs> the use of, of legal proceedings to basically uh, attack politicians, which Spain is uh, very, very fond of. Many political parties use lawfare as a big political tactic. And basically, to that leads us to today. So we've had this agreement nearly signed. It still needs the ratification of the PNV party, which is the, the Basque Nationalist Party, but that's meant rumored to be a done deal. And it looks like Pedro Sanchez is going to be able to form government, but uh, there might be still be some surprises in store from the other side of politics. And what will it mean specifically for those Catalan separatist plotters, many of whom have been in exile for several years? Will they be hopping flights uh, back to Barcelona this afternoon? Well, not so fast, not so fast. But the details of the deal, which still haven't been completely released, a few details say that the pretty much the deal includes er, er, any politician or, or separatist or person who was charged with with anything connected to the the process, as it's called, the Catalan independence drive between the years 2012 and 2023, will receive an amnesty. And also, there's going to be, more importantly, a negotiating table opened up between the, the Catalan political parties, particularly the separatists and the government, where they can air their grievances and, and talk about the path ahead. That's a, a big part of the agreement. Also, the pardoning of a sizable amount of Catalan debt. There's always a bit of money to sweeten the deal, of course. And this, of course, has inflamed the, the right side of politics, particularly Vox, the more more far-right party, which uh, it's rumoured to, well, there's been many reports showing that a lot of the protests that have erupted in Madrid particularly have been spearheaded by Vox and uh, a lot of their, their, their factions. So there's a lot of anger on the streets, particularly on the right side of, of politics, or also uh, in, the, in the parliament. Some of the statements released today say that by the, the political spokespeople from the right have said this is a humiliating day for Spain, a shameful day. Uh, the leader of the PP party in Madrid said that this was one step further to dictatorship. And the response from the socialists has been to release a statement saying that we, we need to be careful that we don't slide or we don't poison Spain with, uh, with Trumpism. So there's a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of shots being fired over the... Yeah. Over the and just briefly, for Pedro Sanchez, it sounds like short-term gain, but this could create real long-term problems. How difficult is it going to be for him to govern now? 
I'm not sure if it's going to create more problems, but inflame problems that already exist. I mean, if you look at the way this is being perceived on, on both sides of politics, one, one on the left, there's a, a sizable chunk of the country that would like to put the past behind them that isn't uh, averse to the idea of forgiveness and looking at as another which believes that the Catalan separatists really tried to splinter Spain and they deserve to be punished and they don't have any room uh, in their hearts for for forgiveness. And they're saying that, you know, if uh, they pardon the Catalan separatists now and they've got an amnesty, then what's stopping them from repeating the actions or the the, the agenda of 2017? So, mm. yes, there's a lot of uh, disagreement and uh, a lot of division in Spain, but it's been there. It's been festering under the surface, and now it's been brought to, to the fore. Liam, thank you very much. That was Liam Aldous Monocle's Madrid correspondent. Now, after 118 days, the Hollywood actors' strike has finally ended. SAG-AFTRA reached agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers in a unanimous vote, securing better pay, residuals from streaming, and protection from the use of AI. Laura Kramer is our entertainment correspondent, and she's with me in the studio now. Uh, Laura, so how good a deal did the actors manage to get? You know, Vincent, I have to say it's such a full circle moment for me because I was actually on the red carpet at the UK premiere of Oppenheimer when the strike was announced and then it officially kicked off the next day on the 14th of July. And it's become the industry's the um, first joint strike in over 60 years. It's estimated, actually, that just those six months in Hollywood have been really tough, costing the Southern uh, California economy more than six and a half billion dollars and 45,000 entertainment industry jobs. And so it's needless to say that this is very welcomed news. Now, specific details of the deal will be revealed when it when it goes to SAG-AFTRA, the, the board on Friday. So we will find out more. But considering the length and the intensity of the strikes, it's likely that the actors managed to secure significant concessions. And the studios responded to the Gill's counter saying that it's a historic package. And the fact that it's being termed as historic suggests that the actors made substantial gains in these areas and including AI. Mm. Uh, and it's worth pointing out, you know, people might just think of actors. There was a coupled with the writer's strike, but it's not just them affected. It was makeup artists. It was the kind of crew that built sets. It was everything. So this was huge for that economy, wasn't it? But what's the reaction been like from the actors themselves? Well, some actors actually, funnily enough, found out the news on the red carpet. It was at the premiere of The Iron Claw. Now, this film didn't fall under the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producer banner. And therefore, it was able to apply and receive agreements from SAG in order to uh, to promote the project. And there is the actor Jeremy Allen White, who listeners might know from The Bear, reacting to the news in real time. It makes me feel incredible. Um, I don't know the details of the deal, but I'm, I'm sure that SAG got what we wanted, what they wanted. And, and I'm so happy to, like, our crews... Now, meanwhile, the CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, said that he is also elated with it. And he says he's going to be one of those people that's cheering on the return of production in the community. 
And on that point, what will this mean now for productions? As there's a huge backlog in the content pipeline, isn't there? Well, you mentioned actually that it does, it doesn't just impact the actors; it also impacts actually production companies in Europe. Too many sound stages are collecting dust webs everywhere because yeah, just I mean, not far from here in London, that's where they make most Marvel films, Star exactly. Wars films, everything. Yeah, exactly. So it'll have a significant impact on that landscape because the resolution means that the stri- the actors can return to work and production processes can start rolling again. And some of the projects that are actually slated to restart as soon as this week or in the near future include Deadpool 3, uh, Gladiator 2, which is being filmed in Europe, um, the Tim Burton-directed Beetlejuice 2, which, funnily enough, that actually only has two days left in order to shoot, in order to, to finish the film, um, as well as Venom 3. So the, the, these projects starting again signals a very positive step towards normalcy in Hollywood after months of, of disruptions. And have you noticed the gears back grinding yet on the all-important PR machines, which were <laughs> sort of the most notable feature for many people, just ordinary people, the sudden absence of lots of muzzled stars? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, it will take time to address the backlogging of productions back on schedule, but that does mean we are starting slowly. And today, my email has not stopped. I've gotten... It's, it's exciting. It does feel like we're Who back. Who are we getting? Who, okay, who's going to okay, be in the mic? Right, I'm going to tell you. I've got uh, messages about the final season's celebrating of the crown season six Mm -hmm. very excited and we're also discussing opportunities with the fingernails cast that's jesse buckley riz ahmed and jeremy allen white who we heard earlier so needless to say i'm ready to get back to the red carpet yeah if you've got a project to promote (laughs) come to midori house that's the message this morning (laughs) all right laura kramer thank you very much you're listening to the briefing on monocle radio This is The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Let's get some of the latest business headlines now with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Ewan, an interesting indicator today on the health of the global economy. Hi, Vincent. Yeah, I want to talk to you today about lube, industrial lube. Now, it's not something that economists generally focus on, but a really interesting piece today by Bloomberg opinion columnist Javier Blas. He says that demand for industrial lube is a really, really good indicator for the global economy. Now, it's something which is all over the place, from engine oil to hydraulic fuels to uh, heavy-duty grease. Lubricants feature in so many of the things that the human race has built uh, over the years. And so it's interesting to look at the demand picture. And I have to say, it's not looking very rosy for next year. The world's two biggest producers of industrial lubricant are Shell of Britain and ExxonMobil of the US. And the Shell chief financial officer told us uh, that uh, demand is really just falling. And it does seem to be falling really right across the world. Of course, there's been deindustrialization uh, across much of the West. But uh, looking at the US, it does seem that it's not just that deindustrialization, but it was also a cyclical demand picture as well. Uh, demand is at its lowest in more than 40 years uh, in the US. But I, thought, I think also instructive to look at demand uh, in some of the parts of the world where you might think it would be rising. Uh, And unexpectedly, uh, lubricant demand is also weak in India. Of course, the Indian economy is growing very strongly. There's plenty of industrial activity. But consumption year-to-date is up by less than 1% uh, uh, compared to uh, a year ago. Uh, JP Morgan's Global Manufacturing Index is now notched up 14 consecutive months below 50. That indicates contraction. So global manufacturing is in contraction. We know that is certainly the case in Europe. But the uh, the demand picture for lubricant also suggests 
uh, we should be concerned about the industrial sector, at least uh, as we look ahead into 2014. Yeah, very important to get the right lube for machines because HMS Prince of Wales, the UK's main aircraft carrier, they put the wrong one reportedly on the uh, drive shaft for the propeller uh, in 2022 and the whole thing had to be dry docked. So very important to get that right. Uh, And an unwelcome ruling for Apple, which could leave it with a very large tax bill. Yeah, an advisor to the European Union's top court has said today that Apple's victory in an earlier challenge should be thrown out. Now, this may sound like pretty dry stuff, but there's a lot of money involved here. Uh, The risk for Apple is that it faces a tax bill of no less than 13 billion euros, which would be payable to Ireland. Now, this has been uh, rumbling on for some time. It started back in 2016, where the EU's uh, antitrust chief, Margareta Vestager, said that she uh, wanted to focus on Apple's tax arrangements with Ireland. Now, you remember, of course, that Ireland has very low corporate tax rates. It's been an incredibly successful strategy in, in, in attracting a lot of big companies, particularly American tech companies, uh, to base their European operations uh, in Ireland. It's been very useful for them. But a lot of other member states in the EU and Brussels itself are not happy with some of these uh, tax arrangements. Uh, and today, the Advocate General of the EU Court of Justice said that Apple's previous win should be re-examined because it was riddled with legal mistakes. Uh, The EU's top tribunal is now set to issue its binding ruling uh, in the case over the next uh, coming months. It's been rumbling on for a long time. Generally, it follows the advice given uh, by the Advocate General in the majority of cases. Uh, So this will be uh, pretty uh, unwelcome news for for Apple. Uh, As for Ireland, which, of course, uh, defends its uh, tax uh, arrangements, it could uh, turn out to be a a rather big win for 14 billion euros. uh, is a lot of money for a small country. And what's interesting about this is, you know, Apple is the highest valued company in the world. It has huge, uh, you know, cash reserves. It it could pay this instantly if it needed to. Uh, But Ireland, actually, the government, you know, whilst they are in for a windfall, which many Irish citizens might uh, think is great for them, the Irish government hasn't been in favour actually getting this windfall. No, fascinating, isn't it? It's very rare that governments uh, say they don't want to receive a massive uh, tax windfall. But of course, Low taxes have been absolutely essential to Ireland's uh, strategy. And we've seen the Irish economy uh, over the last few decades go from a real backwater, it was a really uh, poor part of the European Union, to now being one of the richest uh, member states. Uh, They have had money from the European Union. There has been money flowing from Brussels. But a lot of it has been uh, to do with this strategy of attracting uh, big companies to base themselves there. And it's been an enormously successful strategy. Uh, So, yeah, as you say, it's... uh, Uh, possibly uh, an unwelcome windfall, a very unwelcome large windfall. You and Potts, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally today, the state government of Australia's New South Wales has announced plans for a major rezoning of a commercial district in northern Sydney. The proposals put the regional government on a collision course with local councils. State political reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald, Michael McGowan, broke the story and earlier he spoke to Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. So on Thursday, the, the New South Wales government announced its plan to rezone a 68-hectare parcel of land in the northwest of Sydney, which is a place called Macquarie Park, which is a, a sort of commercially zoned area that was initially intended to sort of attract multinational businesses, research organisations. It's supposed to be a business hub. But the government said 
today we're doing we're making this discrete decision to say look the demand for residential housing in sydney is so great that we're, we're going to to sort of forego some of that commercial land and, and use it for residential housing and and essentially the plan is to use their state powers to override the local council to run a rezoning process that they say will create about three thousand homes now even though this is being sort of couched as a one-off sort of announcement by the government i've reported previously and the premier sort of tacitly conceded today that they plan to do more of this so essentially they're going to create a, a series of priority rezoning precincts where they will come in over the top of the local councils particularly around the metro railway line in, in sydney and and use those areas to um, to boost density do you expect to see much resistance to this from either local councillors or you know business leaders who potentially are losing some of their retail space their commercial space to residential buildings yeah it's it's interesting the dynamics in Sydney, which I, I think is sort of replicated in a lot of metropolitan areas. Uh, last week, the Premier, Chris Minns, gave a, a big speech where he, he made a call for bipartisanship in ending the kind of, uh, or, or, or fixing the housing shortage that has gripped Sydney for a long time. So he made that call for bipartisanship. And then today, immediately, the, the opposition came out and opposed this decision, as did the local council, ride council saying that essentially that, that part of Northwest Sydney has already taken its, you know, its fair share of, of housing. And I say that in sort of inverted commas, um, because as is kind of often the case, and, and is the case specifically to this government, they're making the, the case that we need to increase density to, to sort of bring down housing prices in, in Sydney, which sort of on a theoretical level, I think a lot of people agree with, but when you get into the sort of specifics of a specific area, it becomes much harder to convince people that it's a, it's a good idea. Um, I think on the business side of it, so we're talking about you know commercial land, I think there is less opposition and that's just a reality of the market, I think. The demand for commercial land and office space post-COVID is much, much lower than it is the residential market. And this plan is specifically between two Sydney metro stations. Is there a particular reason for that? Is this also part of a plan to develop Sydney's transport infrastructure? Yeah, so I mean, it's not sort of revolutionary, but what this government, and this government's only been in power since um, March of this year, what they want to do is concentrate development around the sort of metro lines that are quite new in Sydney. The argument is that when the metro lines were built, the previous governments didn't quite take advantage of those sort of transport-oriented areas to, to sort of densify um, those parts of Sydney. So I guess the the ambition is you know, we announced this here in, in this part of Sydney, Macquarie Park, but I think that the ambition is to roll it out over more, more uh, stations in the near future. I guess, and this is probably similar for a lot of places, it's that kind of like very tricky political line that they're walking, right? Whereas theoretically, I think a lot of people understand that with house prices where they're going, with, with rent prices in Sydney, the way they're going, which, you know, sort of increasing exponentially over the past sort of four or five years, there's a kind of understanding that this needs to happen but it's the this is where the rubber hits the road right when you actually start trying to roll these out into local communities and i guess one of the challenges of the, in, in in new south wales and, and and globally is planning departments tend to work slowly so the, the sort of benefits of what they're announcing today may not be seen for you know four or five several years 
That was Michael McGowan speaking to Lillian Fawcett. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>